So my big question today is one simple idea, which is Vayedaber Adonai El Moshe Lemor, or Vayomer Adonai El Moshe Lemor. Two of the most common, they're pretty much interchangeable phrases in the Torah, which means, and God spoke to Moses saying. So we hear it over and over and over. What does it mean? And I'm going to start by suggesting to you a couple of things about it. If we look at the word lemor, lemor can be translated saying, and lemor can be translated as to say. It's an infinitive. So what if we change lemor as to say, and you take, if you look up vayomer in a biblical Hebrew lexicon or dictionary, it will say that meaning number one of say, and the second meaning, which does occur in Torah several times, is to think. In other words, it also means to say to oneself, which is you're thinking to yourself, you're speaking in your mind. Then we could say that Vayomer Adonai El Moshe Lemor means God thought to Moses to say. Or God is speaking in Moses, like God is sending a thought to Moses to say. The, it, it, it highlights the strangeness of the infinitive at the end. So that every time, like what we're getting is that God is speaking to Moses and telling him to say. So what does it mean that God is telling Moses to say? And what if we open it up to the idea that God is sending thoughts to Moses and that that's a legitimate reading of the Hebrew, that it's not that God is, like, is, is God speaking out loud? If other people stick their ear into the tent of meeting, which is normally where Moses is meeting with God, what, what is going, if someone poked their head in the tent of meeting, would they hear a sound? And would the sound be coming out of the wall? So what does it mean, this revelation idea? I want to make an argument for a moment about how unbelievably brilliant Friedrich Nietzsche was. So Nietzsche's connection to Nazism was largely through his sister, who was a professional anti-Semite. But Nietzsche himself was not. I mean, he once wrote famously that God helped the European intellect were the Jewish portion removed from it. She framed his materials as anti-Semitic later, and they did become important, important to the Germans in a way that Nietzsche, I, don't, I think, would have been horrified by. Uh, so that's a, side, that's a tangent on the fact that Nietzsche was not himself an anti-Semite. His sister was. Now, so one of the things that Nietzsche did was everyone, it was a common way to think philosophically that Kant was essentially correct and Descartes. Kant put it more explicitly in the, um, the Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics, where he writes that there are a couple of things that simply we cannot doubt. And the reason we cannot doubt them is not because we have the evidence of our senses. It's because if we doubted them, they're not doubtable. Like our brains would break. We would be pretending to think the thought, but we wouldn't believe it. And one of his three things that it is impossible to question is that my thoughts are my own. 
he called it the transcendental ego. So the transcendental ego is that I can't think that I am having Martha's thoughts right now. That's the way that Kant basically puts it. He's like, come on, I can't think I'm having Martha's thoughts right now. It, it would be just making fun of the idea that we can even think or have a word about the thing. I have to think that my thoughts are my own. That's the transcendental ego. My thoughts belong to me. And of course, Descartes, in a, in a somewhat different way, also said the only thing I can't doubt is that I'm thinking. So Nietzsche, to me, just crazy brilliant, knocks it out with, a, with like a couple of sentences. We acknowledge the small terse fact that a thought comes when it wishes and not when I wish, so that it is a falsification of the facts of the case to say that the subject I is the condition of the predicate think. It thinks, but that this it is precisely the famous old ego is to put it mildly only a supposition, an assertion, and surely not the immediate certainty that Kant and Descartes insisted. After all, as far as I'm concerned, one's already gone too far to say it thinks. Like, I think should be it thinks. It thinks already goes too far. Even the it contains an interpretation of the process and does not belong to the process itself. So my view is that all philosophy can be questioned, but what I want to throw out is whether Nietzsche, I just think, is absolutely right, which is, on the one hand, if Kant or Descartes was before me, they're very convincing, very persuasive. I can't be having Martha's thoughts. At the same time as Nietzsche saying, okay, let's put that idea aside. You can't have Martha's thoughts, sure. But does that give you the certainty to say that when we put a pronoun with a verb, that we've learned something? Wittgenstein does a lot of his philosophy later in the 20th century, very similar to this piece, where he talks about the way that the grammar of language bewitches us. We put a subject with a verb, and we think it teaches us something about the world that we, that, that's more information than we had by just making a sentence. So in other words, fine. If, if I want to say something like, I can't be having Martha's thoughts, I'm having Nadav's thoughts. The idea that I am thinking or I am having my thoughts. Don't make it say more information. Like, what a, don't say that I am learning something deep about, about thoughts, about, about the way thoughts work. I, I just made a sentence, no more. So, from, so the way Nietzsche goes at it here is to say, you're, what, what am I falsely thinking I'm learning by the statement, I think my thoughts? I mean, sure, I think my thoughts, but what do I think I'm learning from that? I think I'm learning that I make my thoughts. That the thoughts that happen, I already said, they have to be mine because they can't be Martha's. And what that teaches me is I am making my thoughts. I'm in charge of them. Like, yay, Nadav, every thought I have, I made it. It's like, it, you know, uh, I, I think that Nietzsche and Wittgenstein would say something like, it's a little bit like the anal uh, stage in Freud. I made my poop and I'm spreading it on the walls. Look at me. And every parent thinks, so I hope that stage only lasts one day. Um, so it's like, yay, I made a thought. All my thoughts come from me. I, I, I'm special. So he's like, you know what? 
I'll tell you something. Nietzsche says, you know what I'm certain about? I'm certain about that sometimes my thoughts seem that I, I'm not I'm not making my thoughts. That sometimes, yeah, I sit there and I go, shoot, I gotta work out my taxes. Okay, I've got to put line 13 on line 11, and then I got to divide by two. That kind of feels like I am slogging it out, making thought after thought. But a lot of time, I'm just kind of staring out the window and I see the bird chirp and I think, oh, that reminds me of this. And oh, that reminds me of that. Do I really want to say that I'm making myself have these thoughts? They may be my thoughts, but if I'm assuming a causal element, I cause my thoughts. Maybe I use information, but the idea that I'm in charge. So I, I'm seeing this chat and I want to see what it says. Um, and I'm uh, correct. S similar to the meaningless, it, uh, it rains. Um, as Lisa Koppler says, I mean, for years and years and years in my master's studies, I studied with a guy named Hillary Putnam, um, who rediscovered his Judaism later in his life. It's always helpful to do that after you get tenure. That a, it, a lot of um, philosophy of language in the 20th century was dealing with the statement, it rains, um, mostly through the word of Alfred Tarski. And basically what happened is, Tarski made the famous statement that says, how do we know anything about reality? Can we philosophically figure it out? And so then said that, uh, well, it rains. We can know if that's true or not true by comparing the world, the evidence of our senses, with the statement, it rains. And after about 50 years of philosophy of language and articles published on Tarski's famous comment, statement, it rains, basically, especially in the work of Donald Davidson, he worked out the fact that it rains is true if and only if it rains. You can never make it work to say it rains is true if and only if the evidence of my senses determines that it rains, or I can verify scientifically that it's raining. All of those words, as Nietzsche already put in this tiny little paragraph, God bless you, Nietzsche, is that it contains an interpretation of the process. So what Tarski, the work on Tarski showed is that any way of thinking the statement it rains is telling you something about the way we understand reality. That understanding of reality will include an interpretation that you then say the statement it rains already contained. So at the end of the day, it rains is true if and only if it rains and we have no more information than that. Like we don't, we can't say anything more about it because it would be interpretation. If we allow the fact that, let's just say for a moment, sometimes thoughts come to me. And Nietzsche, and this is the part I wanna just own. Are we allowed to say phenomenologically, sometimes it feels like thoughts come to me unbidden. Sometimes I am inspired. Sometimes, like back when I was in college in the early 80s, long distance was expensive. And I was raised never to use long distance except if we're talking to someone from Israel for like 10 minutes and then we save up two months to pay the bill. I never spoke with my parents on the phone. It was very, very rare. And sometimes a thought would come to me, I should call my mom. And I would walk over to a phone and the phone, my phone would ring. We had phones in the dorm rooms. That it's just, it was the long distance that was expensive and it would be my mother. And so those are some of the experiences that made me religious, that made me want to, Let's put it this way. Want to study religious philosophy. Want to move from the work I was doing with Tarski and Davidson into religious philosophy. I'm curious, like, 
that just seemed to me something, has anyone ever written about that? Is that, is, has anyone ever written intelligently about that? So I would say that I have the experience, whether it's valid or not, that sometimes thoughts just come to me from the universe. And you guys all know that the universe is another word um, for me, for God. Sometimes thoughts come unbidden. Okay, so now I'm going to go to Abraham Joshua Heschel, and all these quotes come from God in Search of Men, a book in which the, our greatest philosopher in the 20th century in Judaism tries to explain from an orthodox, what he considers to be an orthodox point of view, he's orthodox, taught at the conservative seminary, of course, and what he thinks is going on with Revelation and by the Baradonel Moshe Limor. And he says, there is an aspect of prophetic experience that is related to a universal problem of philosophy. And, this is, and so this is what I was just talking about, so it's relevant. Whether all the ideas, visions, and aspirations of the mind originated in the soul of man, or whether they were ultimately derived from a source outside of man. By the way, I'm gonna preserve his actual language. He always used the word man to refer to human beings or humanity. It's definitely male-centric, and I apologize for that, but he means it humanistically. He, uh, by the way, he, he knew extensively Nietzsche some, but he was extensively knew Kant, and he knew this whole issue in philosophy. But the issue is, can we break down the dichotomy of either I create my thoughts or God created the thought? He's still a little bit with the dichotomy, but let's keep going. Particularly in religious and artistic thinking, the disparity between that which we encounter and that which is expressed in words and symbols, no words and symbols can adequately convey. In our religious situation, we do not comprehend the transcendent. We are present at it. We witness it. Whatever we know is inadequate. Whatever we say is an understatement. We have an awareness that is deeper than our concepts. We possess insights. Knowledge is not the same as awareness. And expression is not the same as experience. Even if we say Moses was having an experience of God, we still have to be careful of the language of experience because it implies subject and object. I experience a thing. I experience a another. I experience that which is outside of me. So if we are going to talk about something as subtle as revelation, it's gonna be hard. And I wouldn't be doing this lecture if it were easy because it, it's so, hard. It's maybe the concept that people get the least. We're talking about something really difficult to talk about because what I'm trying and what he's trying to do is before we jump to an answer about what Vayomer Adonai Moshe Lemur means, we first have to loosen our grip on the categories. And so if you say, oh, well, I'm okay. I see you're going to say God caused Moses to think. And yes, yes, I am trying to say that's the way I want to translate it. But I also don't want to fall back into the trap of saying we've solved everything because God is outside of Moses. Moses is here. 
and God caused the thought. You could say that God is still a thing. God is still a thing that in a simple causal effect made me have a thought. Whereas what Heschel's trying to do is a little bit more like what I'm saying about the universe. For those who come to everything I do, first of all, you're going straight to heaven. Uh, you, don't, you, you, you can pass go, collect all the 200s you want. God bless you all. But for those who come to everything I do, you know the biggest thing that I try to preach is that religion is trying to deal, and Kabbalah specifically, with getting out of the mindset that every one effect has a single cause. So Moses has a thought. It is caused by a single cause. Now Dav is now saying it is God, because that would mean God is a thing within the universe. And God is not a thing, and the rest of the universe is outside of God. God is the universe. And what it means is that when I have the thought that I need to call my mother, I'm not just saying that my mother telepathically sent me a thought. And so the cause of my thought was a single thing outside of me. What I'm really saying is let's change the word from experience to awareness. We're talking about the fact of what religion is about is not having an experience of a thing called God. Please, God, appear to me. Send me a thought. Please do this thing. Um, let me see my loved one in heaven. But rather, what we're trying to do is expand our awareness. And awareness, why is that important? Experience implies there's an object of my experience. Awareness implies that there are thousands, if not millions, of simultaneous causes going on at the same time. Religion is about connecting one's awareness to simultaneity, to synchronicity. The more aware I am, the more I want to be aware of everything that is happening around me in the moment. I don't just want to say what's going on with the vaccine for pandemic. I want to know what's going on in developing countries. I want to know what's going on in families. I want to know what's going on with the earth. I want to know what's going on with, like, how can I be in the very, very moment to experience the simultaneity of everything going on? What's going on with the squirrels? What's going on with the groundhogs? Like, and so the more I increase my awareness of what is happening in the universe, the more I am in touch with God, then it is more likely that I'm going to have the thoughts like, oh, I should do this. Oh, I should reread chapter 23 of Exodus. Oh, I should give a sermon on this. Oh, I should call my father. Oh, I should call that family. Oh, I should get, you know, like, in other words, what we're looking for with awareness is that the thoughts come to me, not because that one person sent the thought or that I, I actually have a personal relationship with God that, and God only speaks to me. That's still stuck in my experience but rather an awareness of a simultaneity. And, uh, and I'm gonna take a look. And so in God in Search of Man, he wants to say that that awareness is connected to awe, to yira. And it's more than an emotion, it's a way of understanding. And it's conveyed better in attitudes than in words. So that if Moses is in touch with the universe, 
and Moses is sitting in the tent of meeting, and Moses is feeling what the universe is feeling and putting it into words. Moses is feeling what God is feeling and putting it into words. That's Vayomer Adonai Moshe Lemor. It's the conveying of an attitude. What is my attitude to that which is oppressed? What is my attitude? What is what does our attitude need to be to the things that can't defend themselves, like animals, or daily laborers, or non-citizens, or refugees, and escaped slaves? Like, it's not, like, and then, you know, you look at Mount Sinai, which always gets me. To this day, I've thought about it a billion times. Okay, I'm exaggerating. I've thought about it a thousand times. But the Ten Commandments happens, and then the, we have all of Parshat Mishpatim. All of these, and by the way, this little rule about this, and don't, and if you borrow collateral from a daily laborer, return the collateral to him overnight. Oh, and this little thing over here, and this, it's, it's like, it's all, it, because the attitude starts to bring in everything. Everything starts to change in the new paradigm. The meaning of awe is to realize that life takes place under wide horizons, horizons that range beyond the span of an individual life or even the life of a nation. So like Moses is basically taking in the universe and then it's time for covenant, a new way of being bonded in partnership with the universe. The universe has purposes. The universe is saying, uh, uh, my God, man, change this thing. My God, man, find another way. You know, and I feel that way today about the, the, the pandemic. I feel that way about the environment. I, I, I feel sheepish about bringing up family, you know, factory farming, which is in the news because all the slaughter plants are, are, are shutting down because we realize they're all populated by, by immigrant workers and desperate people who are underpaid and who have terrible work conditions. And, you know, and, and it's like, like, and to me, I'm like, I do think that 50 years from now, our grandchildren are going to look back on us and be like, my God, man, like, you, you didn't want the rabbi to give a lecture about factory farming and how disgusting it is on every human and animal level. And you're like, no, we really didn't. I mean, like, we really, really did. That was not what we wanted 50 years ago. But my God, man, have you not talked about that? In the 1800s, you know, preachers didn't preach about slavery because it's like their people didn't want to hear it, you know? And it's like, but my God, man, how can you not talk about slavery in the, in the, in the mid 1800s? Like, like, how can you not do that? So that it, it, it's about awe is saying a new covenant is needed, like uh, that transcends generation. And there's a little bit here, and, um, but I don't want to go through everything here. Um, faith is our response to awe. We are today conditioned to conceive the origin of things in terms of their development. It's a whole way academia is designed. And we lack the ability to grasp suddenness, pure events, creativeness. The Bible asserts that man has given himself neither his existence nor his wisdom, that both are derived from the will of God. It teaches us also that certain insights come to us not by the slow process of evolution, but by God's direct, sudden grant. This is him taking Nietzsche and putting it in the Torah. He is saying, we have stopped knowing how to think about stuff without telling you its etiology, right? If I tell you, oh, you know, I just painted 
a pic, this beautiful picture. I don't know where it came from. I saw it in my mind's eye. And then I, and then I, I just had to, let's just say, sculpt it. I can't paint it all. I can't sculpt either, but whatever. And I produced this work of art. It was like the most profound, inspiring thing. Like it, never in my life have I felt like I had to do this. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to be like, oh, I can tell you why you had to do that. I bet I can trace the whole thing out. Well, you had mommy issues at five years old. And so it has the mommy elements. And then you were probably reading an article about sculpture. And that gave you this idea. And I bet I could explain the whole thing by cause and effect uh, comprehensively, because that's what we do in academia. And it gives us a lot of knowledge to explain some things. But it also gives us the hubris to think, to, to lose touch with real the idea of an awareness of the universe that produces something by sudden grit. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. If every single society and town in the face of the globe thought that, of course, every tribe has a chief and the chief makes the rules, it is unthinkable, unthinkable to have another system. I mean, how would we all live? We'd probably all get killed. There probably wouldn't be any law and order. You have to have a chief, and the chief makes the laws. And then you have someone who comes along, let's say Moses, that says, there's only one chief, and that's the chief of the universe. And all forms of kingship will lead to tyranny, which it essentially does, even within Judaism. What does it mean to have a sudden direct grant of a totally different system? And then to think we can analyze Moses by talking about his childhood. Like, like on some level, we realize that our penchant for developmental description, can we at least admit that sometimes it's reductio ad absurdum? And that's what Heschel's bringing up, and I'm mindful of the time. What we could, you know, we, we, and we know this in our own lives, that sometimes like something just comes to you. I mean, that's what I'm chasing. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I take no pleasure in doing my taxes. You know, like I took no pleasure in coming up with a great idea and then writing 400 pages on it for no one to read. Like, like I was kind of like, I'm ready to move on. Like I love that idea for a month. I played for it for a month. I'm looking for the next idea. You know, um, I, I want to paint my next great masterpiece. Like I want to, I, I want to take my awareness to another level. And so that um, this idea of, changing the way one approaches suddenness and creativity into the idea of direct sudden grant. And now he goes back to Nietzsche a bit, or at least what I'm saying, uh, the philosophical claim he started with about the universal problem of philosophy, to claim that religious thoughts arise from the subconscious would merely substitute a mystery for a mystery. The subconscious is a hypothesis so wide and so vague that it is hardly more positively known to us than the idea of the supernatural. Indeed, there is no perception that may not be suspected of being a delusion, but there are perceptions which are so staggering as to render meaningless the raising of such a supposition. This is very, very compact. And even in a one hour presentation on one idea, I cannot unpack all of this right now. And, 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 but the basic idea is this. If I said that Moses is in his tent and he's being inspired with these teachings and he writes them down, then you could say, well, then, you know, that came from his subconscious. And Heschel's making a couple of points here. Number one, he wants to say, remember when I said 
that we have to be careful when we talk about the nature of our thinking, whether we introduce an interpretation of the thinking and then say that interpretation was built in to the simple statement in the first place. His attitude is look at the subconscious. Can you show me the subconscious? Can you do an MRI and show me the subconscious? And so here we have one person who says, Moses thought these ideas from God. And someone says, I can do it from his childhood. I can do it from his adolescence. I, can, I don't know, maybe I can do it from what he had to, what he had to eat at that morning. I'm a smarty pants. I can work out the causal chain of what produced that thought. Because, and his attitude is, well, in a lot of ways, the causal chain is, it was there burbling around in his subconscious and then boom, and I've showed you the chain. And what Heschel's saying is, it includes an interpretation. Because this idea of what you just said, none of it's empirical, right? It's a guess. It's a way of talking. You may, it may be a beautiful and valid way of talking. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's empty, it, it's, but it's not a different way of explaining than explaining something like someone's in touch with the universe, with the, with the all, with the everything, and then said, you know what? No kings. This earth that allows life has built within it the purposes that tier we don't want the alpha male gorilla to beat up the rest of us and rape our women. You know what I mean? Maybe that's what the Epic of Gilgamesh says, is just, <laughs> it's what the gods want. Bullshit. This universe doesn't want it. Life is not made for that. That is the wrong paradigm. That, and, and to say, well, that came from, I want to explain why Nadav had that thought. If, if you're going to talk about the subconscious, it's no more empirical than my explanation. It's no more valid. It's no more legitimate. So that, um, and then you could say, well, are you saying, Nadab, that if someone says they, they just talk to God and they want, um, I don't know, let's just say, all houses must be painted red. You can't tell me that they had a delusion that you're saying, oh, I bet they talked to God because if they said they talked to God and they had a thought, then it must come from God. And Heschel's like, no, the concept of a delusion is a legitimate thing to bring up, but there's no perception that may not be suspected of being a delusion. There's no thought, if a thought comes to me and said, I got it, you know, the best quiche in the world, I'm gonna make it all with Greek yogurt. I may make the, Greek, I may make the quiche and it may be the worst quiche I ever had. I mean, there are a lot of things like, I think my thought didn't work out, but uh, there are perceptions so staggering as to render meaningless the raising of such a, a suspicion. What Heschel wants to say is the idea that if you say that, um, God, you know, oh, you know, it is the idea that we can't eat shrimp. It couldn't that be, you know, Moses came up with a bad one there. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't say that, which is before I start picking it apart, I would say, look at the totality of the revelation. Look at the totality of the paradigm shifts that are taking place before you, um, because it raises as somewhat meaningless, the idea, is it a delusion to think all people are created equal? right? Because visually, all people are not created equal. Some are beautiful, some are not. Some are short, some are tall. Some are this, some are that. Some are this color, some are that color. So, that it, you know, so you could say, well, it's a delusion that all people are created equal. It's kind of an amazingly profound paradigm shift about what we're meant to see, what life calls us to do. And uh, delusion, I, you know, I would say if you want to disagree with it, that's probably not your best way to go about it.
And then, you know, so a cosmic fear. And so then he wants to say, wait a second. Okay, you convinced me Moses in the tent is being inspired. But all of the people on Mount Sinai, they heard a voice come from the cloud, Rav Nadav. And then it says, a cosmic fear enveloped all those who stood at Sinai. And a cosmic awe, a moment more staggering than the heart could feel. The thunder and lightning in Sinai may have been merely an impression, but to have, been suddenly been, to, to have suddenly been endowed with the power of seeing the whole world struck with an overwhelming awe of God was a new sort of perception. So he's saying there is genuinely something new that enters the world for our people at that time. And he is picking up on the things you've heard me talk about before. It does not say that God spoke out of a cloud with words on Mount Sinai. It says that the people heard thunder. The people heard kolot. So that's why he's, and lightning. They saw the lightning and heard the thunder. So that's why Heschel saying, before you tell me, voice came from the clouds and you're not dealing with that. And it says it's external. He's saying, look, remember, it's thunder. Thunder is happening at Sinai. And it's, it, it's some kind of, and that's not the important thing here. It may have merely been an impression. Like, that, the important thing is not that it's external. But to have suddenly been endowed with the power of seeing the whole world struck with an overwhelming awe of God was a new sort of perception. What we mean by Sinai, when I say it's from Sinai, it, Sinai is the key moment for us. It's the moment of seeing that the world needs to change and be lived in this new enlightened revelation that Moses is presenting. That could I go back and say, well, if I went back to Egypt and I believe that I'm born into a slave class, but they feed me well enough and they give me some time off, like, like in Roman times or something, a little bit, like, is that better than the whole civilization falling apart? Is that better than me having to be forced to create a whole new civilization, maybe get killed by the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, or the Philistines, if not the Moabites, the Midianites, and let's keep going, the Amalekites. That's the, that was what Sinai was. It was the sense that there is no going back, that the new paradigm has to happen. We're going to complain, we're going to whine, but we see, you can't go back when you see the world differently, right? When I think the world revolves around me, and then I have someone in my life like my wife, and I see how some of my actions that are, I thought were essential to who I am hurt her and give her pain, I cannot go back to my previous idea that that's just me being me. I cannot go back. I see the world differently. When I had to live in academia, and you're all bored of my stories, I'm sure, where I was told that, pro, that when I spend time with students, I talk to them about their lives, I try to figure out where they're at in their journeys, I try to give them some love and care, I bring them chicken soup when I find out they got mono. When I'm told by my committee that I am procrastinating, and I have to decide Am I deluded? I think I'm being a nice mensch, but the truth is they are right. I'm procrastinating on writing my dissertation. And then I realized, to me anyway, if you're telling me that actually serving these kids 
whose parents are paying hundreds of thousand dollars for an education. And that caring and teaching and nurturing and, and sharing ideas is procrastination from the real work of academia. I can't go back there anymore. Like once I realized I don't believe that, I can't go back. People used to ask me all the time in rabbinical school, when are you finishing your dissertation? When are you finishing your dissertation? And I love, I know it's, it, they're trying to be complimentary. They're trying to be sweet. I can't go back, right? To me, that's a delusion, what I had. The idea that I'm going to believe it again, I can't go back to Egypt. For me, I'm like, I see things differently now. I want to spend time with my students. I, I, I want everyone to be my student. I, 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 want to, I, want to, I want to serve, you know, I want to get together for coffee and, and find out like, how can the 15 minutes that you that we spend together how can i be a positive force in your life i mean and you know like so that it's a power of seeing and once you see the world differently like you can't go back we're coming to the end of our little presentation because we have like three minutes left so revelation is not an act of interfering with the normal course of natural processes the act of instilling a new creative moment into the course of history in other words don't go back to the supernatural's natural dichotomy. It is not that normally all thoughts can be explained naturally. I can, I, I can dictate the course of developmental things that led up to Nadav's thoughts. Except when we say God spoke to Moses, it means there is an outside cause that is supernatural that caused the thought. Don't go back to the natural supernatural dichotomy. It goes nowhere except bad places. Like, um, but rather, so it's not that revelation is a supernatural intervention, interfering with natural things. It's an act of instilling a new creative moment into the course of history. And then if you say, wait a second, Adav, you personified the universe. You're telling me that the universe wanted Martin Luther King to think this. You're telling uh, me that the universe wanted Moses to think this. I'm like, absolutely. My experience of an awareness of what it means to be interconnected with this incredible system that we live in is that it wants things from me. And Heschel and I are on the same page. I may not know what God is, but I know what God wants. I can know what God wants. The one thing that comes through to me is not the isness of God. It's the purposes of God. I mean, like, I don't think we should be strangling little puppies. I don't think we should be hurting animals. I don't think we should be oppressing the stranger. I think we need to get beyond the crap that our international order is mired in and the silliness and pettiness that pervades society. The universe is saying, this universe is designed for life to emerge from it? For this? For this? Like, absolutely, I think that's true. And, that, and so, it, and we have um, a final quote to the naked eye. Thinking appears to be a merely a human affair, self-induced, with nothing perceptible beyond it. But the, I, Heschel's like, I think that's an illusion. Skillful masters that we are in drawing from the well of thought, we are certainly not the well itself. We do not know where the force of thought comes from, what is behind all certainty. Mind can only grasp what is reducible to a mental object. It cannot reach beyond itself and sense the origin in the system. Capital S. Being always in motion, it would have to be unmoved in order to grasp that which brought it into motion. In Acts of Prophecy, a new motion sets in 
and man is placed at the source of all thinking. To give one example, that is the essence of the later prophets, right? The country has come to an end. There is no more Judea. There's no more Judah. It was destroyed. We are now living in Babylonia. We are, there is, like, it has, uh, it has ended. And to see the prophets come out and say, I'm going to give you a whole new paradigm of history. History is the interplay of our people with the earth. And it, and there is a, and there's a redemption coming in the land. People are like, that's silly and unthinkable. And then the prophets are like, it's the only thought worth having. The idea that you're just going to be a good Assyrian, you're going to be a good Babylonian. It's the only thought. It's the only way to see is a new paradigm that what God is, is God's action in history in partnership with us for a new Jerusalem, for repopulating the land to a continuation of what we're doing. And so, and we are today conditioned to conceive the origin of things in terms of their development, lack the ability to grasp suddenness, pure events, and creativeness. And so I'm going to stop my share and be back with all of you. I'm going to unmute all, well, I shouldn't unmute all of you. We may hear your TV. So, um, but I just, so that was my presentation for today, which is instead of a voice coming out of a cloud, it, and, and even with Moses, because we could say that, uh, you could you could you can make a case for it. I'm not anyone who says that the voice came out of a cloud and Moses took dictation. It, there's a case to be made. It's it's not an idiotic thing to think, but um, it's but whether Vayomer Adonai Moshe Lemor, God caused God thought to Moses. It's Vayomer is God thought. God thought to Moses to say to go tell the people. God thought to Moses to say, and how we think of revelation in that way. And, and because otherwise we have a statement over and over again that's very challenging. Maybe our little trope, our little cliche, our little idiom, it all happened on Mount Sinai when it didn't all happen in Mount Sinai. The whole Torah is full of Moses going to the tent of meeting and coming out with more teachings. Is there some cartoon in our heads of what revelation is that isn't even present in Torah? And can we think of it in a different way? I think that part of my take on those like uh, Carl Jung and his book, Synchronicity, or the works of Mircea Eliade on synchronicity and so on, is that I'm still thinking about it. I don't, I'm not saying I have the answer, but I, I'm trying to go from the place of thinking, I, I agree about parapsychology, but instead of thinking it like there's a supernatural cause of my thought, like, I don't know, uh, you're a Geller. So instead of like yeah. Geller, Geller being like, I'm going to make Nadav think about his mom right now. I'm thinking of it a little bit differently, partly influenced by, by thinkers like Eliada, which is this. What if we're all sharing the same visible and invisible system? So that simultaneity, synchronicity, could partly be that we're sharing God. Like we're, we're, we're both in, the, in some ways when it comes to God, we're in the same room. So why should it be surprising that it just occurred to me to call my mom and now the phone's ringing and it's her? If we stop thinking just in terms of time and space as, as, as the determinants, of what is possible, what is happening. And this does, as you said, Monica, it gets into very psychology. 
on some level, uh, why? Let's say I come up with a brilliant sermon for, you know, it should happen. What if I come up with some brilliant sermon for Saturday? No one's ever thought it before. I pulled together six different things. And what if someone else gives the same sermon? You know, Moresh at Yisrael in Yerushalayim or Temple whatever in Cleveland. It shouldn't surprise me because we're both living in God. Like we're both sharing the system. If we're, if we're both aware, that's, a sign, that's, a, that's not a sign of, oh, no, they stole my, it's not a sign of plagiarism. It's a, it's a compliment. It means someone else is giving the same sermon on some level. We must both be in touch with the system. The same, we're taking all in the same stuff. Like we're in the same rhythm. And I think of the service, the early parts of the service are so much about reality as it is experienced by God is as music. There are rhythms to it. There are flows to it. There are harmonies playing off of each other. And so in some ways, I'm, I'm still playing with the idea. I believe that maybe there's something causal, like parapsychology causal, Geller causal, but there's also the way in which we are both sharing the same, we're both on the same grid. We're both sharing the same system. It's not surprising that we would be thinking thoughts at the same time, um, that, that, that we're in the same rhythm, like music. Like, don't, we're sharing the same piece of music. We're just, a, we're just far apart. So, but those are just ways of playing around with it. Right. Right. And on the other hand, you have to explain why your mother, why not my mother? Why did my mother call you? Oh, uh, you don't know my mother. Oh, that, no, that reminds me of the con thing. That reminds me of like, I can't have Martha's thoughts. I can't, I can't, ha I can't have your mother's thoughts. I can't have your mother's call. Um, but uh, no, it, 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 it's a good point. It, it, because there is a certain connection between the two of you, you and your mother, me and my right. mother. That. No, you're right. And there really are like invisible lines of connection that are, that are, that are really, that are really going on. And no, you're right. And, 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 you know, the way I think that the Kabbalists viewed it, and I think is that, you know, if, if you, I, I think it's a very helpful thing. I do it a lot. Try to frame your theological questions, not as did God cause something? What is God? Try to get away from the isness, the ontology, but focus on either what does God want? And that's not a cop out. That's actually a more direct way to God. And the other one is um, ask yourself, what is God seeing and God hearing? And we know God does not have eyes and we know God doesn't have ears. But what they want to say is imagine, and I do this all the time. Imagine you had God glasses, and you put on your God glasses, what would it look like? It's a way of getting out of limiting yourself by your own perception. And one of the things that the service is saying, every morning service and every Kabbalah Shabbat service, is, and the, the Psalms are saying it. Number one, when it comes to your ears, what would it mean to imagine that God hears reality as music? and then follow that implication out. We're all on the same rhythms. We play harmonies. Um, it's about awareness too. Like, what does it mean to get silent and then hear everything around us as music? So that everything that sounds like separate homes, separate, 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 can we hear it as music? And as I said at my audition weekend for Beth Israel, one of the key moments of my life was 
I've been meditating for a couple of years and frankly, not a lot had happened. It always relaxed me and made me feel better. But one day, like I really just started hearing it all in my meditation, cars going down the street, bird song, wind, people mumbling in the distance. It was like my perceptual funnel had just gone boom. And I was actually hearing it all as music. And I was like, this isn't a metaphor. My awareness took another leap up. And that was already in Judaism. And then the other one is to imagine, you were talking about invisible points of light or connection and mothers. Imagine that the Kabbalists say, every single person is a spark of energy, is, and that we are all connected on an energy grid. So imagine it as a massive energy grid, like an electric grid, and each of us is a point on it, a little energy node. And so sometimes I think that. So like there, there's, it's kind of like these invisible God lines connecting all of us on the same grid. And so that it's not surprising that something could go from one to another, like a thought or, or an awareness.